0: Welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon. Joining me on the other line, I hear that Worcester is a great place to drive your new sports car while you play air guitar right before your breakfast meatloaf. It's Danielle Hanley.
1: Oh, oh, thank you for that. I'm I'm like still grossed out about the breakfast meatloaf. I'm
0: I'm mixing up characters and timelines even in the intro, but I thought it was worth it. Um, Worth it. I ran out of breath and too much air guitar, (laughs) too much vegetarian meatloaf for breakfast. I don't know. Worth it.
1: Honestly, worth it. Vegetarian meatloaf sounds like a thing you could eat for breakfast because it's not meatloaf.
0: Correct. Should we'll we get, like? Should we do like an early gloss and or bar no, the no. and get this out of the way? Or
1: no, let's come it's a back tease. to it. The tease. tease, exactly. Okay. This
0: Danielle a tease. had a lot of feelings about breakfast meatloaf here in American in season two, episode eight. I don't know. New car directed by John Dahl and written by Peter Ackerman. Danielle, is there meatloaf from the IMDb summary? The audience wants to know.
1: Honestly, no, and it's surprising. The IMDb summary for this episode is that Philip and Elizabeth both find themselves faced with painful turns in their various missions. Stan fights to gain access to an American military program that could give him the upper hand in his battle of wills with Oleg. Okay.
0: Okay, that works. So the, I think, key word, if we might, in that IMDb summary is that of painful. Because Mm. as you pointed out before we started recording, this is an episode in which the way that people are experiencing the Cold War or experiencing capitalism is kind of structuring yeah. the action, structuring the responses of the characters to the various plot developments and to the other where other folks are doing this episode. So like do you have like a grand kind of unifying framework <laughs> for that that we should start with?
1: Oh, I do. <laughs> I think this like the tension between the lived experience or like the embodied experience of capitalism or the Cold War or sort of where those things like violently intersect against the like supposed ideological commitments that are are meant to or expected to often trump any any feelings or sort of immediate experiences. I think that that is a way to think through some of the different plot points and like major character developments we get in this episode.
0: So what's some, like, the instigating scene of that for you? Yeah. The, like, the dialogue for of this?
1: This starts at the beginning of the episode where Philip is at the, the car dealership. Yeah. I, so
0: you're right from the beginning. This is, like, the second scene of the entire yeah. episode.
1: I wanted this to be a used car dealership. It's not. But, like, it's fine. <laughs> um, but the car salesman asks Philip, like, but how does it make you feel? Right? And there's he, like, really, like, hams it up on this line. And then I couldn't help but recognize that, like, then when Philip pulls in and he's talking to Elizabeth, and she, he can see that she's, like, a little bit disappointed in him. Disappointed um, is
0: a gentle word. Like, I think yeah. there's some disgust there, right, yeah. in Elizabeth in some ways?
1: Yeah, and Philip says to Elizabeth, don't you ever like it? And there's something about the, like, but how does it make you feel? Don't you ever like it? That feels a little bit illicit or, like, transgressive in the world in which Philip is is meant to live in the world in which Elizabeth lives
0: yeah I think that that conflict is the right way to push it right because so Philip you know, go through a series of questions don't you enjoy any of this the house the clothes the shoes it makes you human to like those things it doesn't make you bad to like any of those things you know so on yeah. and so forth it's like for Philip that's a real question and is in fact not irreconcilable with the ideology or with the commitment to the Soviet Union and their spy work from his perspective, at least Elizabeth cannot even engage the terms of the question itself. Right. It's like the ideology. So has to, overpower the lived experience of like, it's clear that when Philip is like, don't you like these things? She does like some of these things. And the way that she then tries to piece together an answer is that things can be nicer here. Things can be easier here, but they're not better here.
1: That she, her response when Philip starts this line of questioning is like, you know how I grew up. Like, you know how I've struggled, you know, like the suffering I've experienced as a way to justify or explain away moments of enjoyment that she does have, but like so that they never are like more important than are overshadowing, shadowing her commitment to ideology.
0: Right. Which of course is connected to the structuring conflict between the two of them from literally the first episode. Yeah. Elizabeth thinks Philip is too, enjoys America too much, to put it very bluntly and simply, which is the way she puts it at times.
1: Yeah, and I was sort of surprised to see that uh, creep back in, the, like, yeah. Philip, you're enjoying America too much, to creep back in, like, so blatantly here. And I think, and we can talk about this a little bit more a little bit later, but I think you see, like, the the impact or the implication of that in the scene with the septic tank driver guy. Like, you see that, like, shadow of doubt that Elizabeth has in the beginning come, like, sort of come to fruition in a way towards the end.
0: Right, and that reappearance of this conflict yeah. between the two of them is very pointed, considering that, I feel if it was last episode or the episode before, Claudia tells Elizabeth, I was wrong about Philip. He is indeed committed He is indeed a better partner, he is indeed a better spy than I ever gave him credit for, which of course by implication is saying then you gave him credit for Elizabeth, and then here we are in this episode and that conflict comes back. Yeah, and I recurs. It's the eternal recurrence of the Philip Elizabeth conflict, one might say.
1: The eternal return, if
0: you will. (laughs) Right.
1: No, and I think, like, that's one of the things I like about the show is, like, that those doubts that are seeded early on, Mm. that we might, we haven't really touched that in almost a season, right? Basically, since they get tortured last season. And here it, like, comes back in full force, right? It becomes this really key thing. And it is, like, also doing some... That those doubts and that question and the relationship to capitalism, to America, to enjoyment, to lived experience, the immediacy of that, like, also structures all of these other relationships within the episode as well.
0: It does. Even before we get to those, I think that there are two things there you said that are worth commenting on further. One is that you're right that kind of, as, uh, as an explicit and articulated within the dialogue conflict, this isn't as present since about yeah. that time last season. And yet, the way that it functions in the background of their interactions with one another, but also the interaction with other characters or even just like their existence as characters in a TV show, right? Like the show is constantly being like here, let us dress Carrie Russell really, really well as Elizabeth, which is a way of inviting us to at least ask that question of, that Philip then poses in their disagreement in the laundry room here in this episode. Yeah, and then secondly, absolutely. I think kind of what you said, this like the immediacy of it. That's mm-hmm. really important. And one of, I think to kind of make a very broad point to F of your point is to say that one of the things that Elizabeth, I think is constantly working over as a character is how much she can like trust her immediate lived experience yeah. as opposed to those kind of broader structuring frameworks that are what motivate her on the most conscious, intentional, like ego or super super ego way, and the more kind of affective or embodied experiences of things are at times like very, very meaningful for her, but at times it's like revulsion. And, she, and yeah. like, does the revulsion come first and then she changes and reflects later? Or we've even seen this episode, she lets Lucia be killed by Leric and has exactly. the revulsion later, right? So it's that push and pull between those modes of response or modes of reactivity to situations that is very much a part of her character.
1: Yeah, and I would almost, I would almost say that Leric like, reads that on mm, Elizabeth and, coin, and, coin. and reads the, that internal struggle. And I read the scene between Leric, and Elizabeth, like, when he's strangling Lucia, I read that as, like, he's challenging her. Yeah. And in part, he's, like, challenging her on the basis of, like, the information and, like, and what he's promised, et cetera, et cetera. But also, like, the there's a deeper layer there where he's challenging her commitment. And I think that he sort of right, rightly reads a wavering that he sees he can, like, manipulate or exploit.
0: That's, that's happening in, in, in a couple different ways because he sees that opening – as a way, on the one hand, to enhance his own situation, he sees maybe I can turn this into a leverage play to just like help them with the Marshall Eagle mission and then be done forever and mm-hmm. never be under the like KGB thumb ever again. Yeah. On the one hand. And then he also uses it as a way to further displace or unsettle Elizabeth when it's very clear that Larrick's presence has already deeply unsettled Philip, Elizabeth and Claudia, all of them. So he's, that's kind of the, one of the roles that he plays like structurally in the season. We've even talked about this in previous episodes, how he does that kind of disruptive work to the planning, to the sense of self, the sense of bodily integrity, the sense of safety of these characters, the, professional competency of these characters
1: well and like you see that the show doubles down on that through philip who's like great we can kill him now great we can yeah. kill him now great we can kill him now and elizabeth's like well we can't well we can't right like it the lyric introduces just as you said all of these like further complications and like extends this timeline in ways that like Make it spin out of Philip and Elizabeth's control.
0: Because Philip assumes when, to your point, he says, well, now we can kill him, (laughs) that Elizabeth tried to stop this from happening and, like, Derek had acted out of pocket in doing this and that was the justification they needed to themselves, they needed to Claudia, or they needed to Kate. When, in fact, it was that Elizabeth let this happen, when presumably she is a good enough shot at a close range that she could have shot and killed Derek and freed Lucia. Oh. No question.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's how I read it. Yeah. Like, that she's actively making the decision. That's how I read it in the scene. And then that's how I, like, I think that's confirmed later. Like, she absolutely could have made that shot. Chooses like the ideological commitment and fulfilling the mission over any relationship she had or was developing with Lucia.
0: Right. And the way you frame that is, I think notable in that I'm not sure the ideological purpose in the mission overlap as closely as Elizabeth perhaps Uh, assumes. And they themselves more so when Claudia was the handler have questioned whether the, Although we also had that scene with Kate where they're in to- Tompkins Square Park a couple episodes ago, yeah. um, but anyway, they're constantly questioning whether the center's kind of bureaucratic, mission-oriented purpose in fact lines up with their understanding of what good spycraft or ideological vision might be.
1: There are moments, right, where they allow the they allow for that divergence to yeah. sort of. To to open up, especially like when it pertains to Emmett and Leanne, right? Like they're willing to sort of follow. That's like how they got themselves into this mess. They were willing to follow know, those breadcrumbs, right? right? Because they they had the sort of like personal connection, um, and then it like also becomes like something that the center takes up. But now we're like four spirals in, and it's unclear like what the connection, like what those connections really are.
0: Two points. It is, and I wanted I wanted to do a little bit more on Leric, and then we should talk about Lucia here, obviously as well. But first, two points, um, or a point in a question about Philip and Elizabeth themselves. Great. The point is that in the background, and like I'm assuming this is on purpose, and it's would just meant for like a laugh, but. In the background behind uh, Elizabeth, right, so it's shot where when Elizabeth is talking, the camera is looking at her from Mm -hmm. roughly Philip's perspective and vice versa. A couple of times when Elizabeth is talking the way that her body is positioned, one can see the laundry laundry detergent box of cheer, laundry detergent, cheer, Uh happiness, feelings, right? (laughs) So, like, when you said that this is a way that we might understand this episode, I was like, oh... I have a point to make. Um, some <laughs> di- some some director bullshit, right? Um, we love, we love director bullshit. I, one of us does, and it's not you. Uh, typically,
1: I love how excited you get about director <laughs> bullshit. I yeah, like I, don't have an eye or a mind for it.
0: I appreciate that very deeply. <laughs> so the question then is: How does Henry figure into these issues of the li- the lived experience of capitalism, or what ideology does? Or kind of what the push and pull, if we're framing it as that between or the tension between lived experience and ideology, the way that that circulates within the household and family structure is shaping Henry's experience of doing whatever it is he's up to.
1: Or rather, I think, like, one way to think about Henry is, like, that he is a sponge absorbing all of this Mm -hmm. and then, like, enacting pieces of all of it that are maybe not entirely, um, like, compatible with each other, but, like, are enacted always through the person of Henry, right? So, like, on the one hand, I, I said this to you before, but, like, in my notes, I have, oh, my God, Henry, spy lessons internalized, wow, right? Because, like... He has picked this lock and like snuck into the neighbor's house and like I think Philip and Elizabeth he didn't pick thing. the
0: lock, right? He snooped where the oh key yeah, sorry. Was in the backyard, yeah. He
1: snooped where the key was, and then I'm like, All telescope. I need to do he is surveilled. Go upstairs yeah. Is go and look where his telescope is pointed.
0: It's not <laughs> at the sky. It's not at, like the really incredible full moon over <laughs> the, the, the past door. couple <laughs> days. <laughs> yeah.
1: So like on the one hand, you have Henry absorbing like spy stuff that I feel like are, you know, that Philip and Elizabeth are probably not even cognizant of, of the, the ways they're performing those things in the way that like you pick up like verbal tics that your parents have when you're younger. Right. Like, so like in that way you get the, some of the spy stuff. We also have seen Henry a number of times throughout this series when he deigns to make an appearance. (laughs) He's obsessed with video games. He he loves consumption. Like he's a true eighties
0: kid. Like hundred percent.
1: You know, you know, and Paige before her like Jesus freakdom also a true eighties kid, right? So like, and they
0: we should put a pin in whether Paige is actually a Jesus freak to come back to you for future episodes.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um. What
0: I will point out is a lived experience and feelings versus ideology conflict or question for her in a different way than it is, you know, but similar sort of things like, is she a true believer is a legitimate question that we'll be able to ask, I think.
1: Well, and I think, like, the some of the the questions we're asking about Henry in terms of, like, what's he absorbing from his parents? What's he absorbing from the world outside? How is he enacting a relationship to those different sort of, like, experiences? Like, his lived experience is, like, this, like, assemblage of, like, spy, communism, capitalism, uh, and, uh, like, kiddom, right? Yeah. Like, it's all of these things together. So that's, astronauts. like... And astronauts, (laughs) which like maybe is also communism and capitalism and or the Cold War, (laughs) right?
0: I mean, we're in the 80s, right? So like the Soviets have kind of given up on the space race, but yes.
1: Reagan is like, let's have a Star War.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Guess what Henry has all around his room as we see in this episode? Star Wars paraphernalia.
1: We love, but yeah, so that's like how I'm thinking about Henry and like the sort of this question of like lived experience versus ideology. If we think about Henry as, as something of a sponge, but not as fully like non or like unconscious sponge, like the way that he enacts relationships to these different pieces is really interesting to see how they are fitting together or like brushing up against each other within his person.
0: I have never quite made sense of what... Henry is doing with his like protestations before his parents in the very final scene of this episode where he's like preemptive, he's uh, preemptively like enacting the like emotional self-flagellation so that he doesn't get it from his parents. Maybe I just answered my own question there. Right. And he's, you know, insistent. I'm a good person. I am, I am a good person. I swear. You know, on the one hand, he's extremely apologetic on the second hand. On the third hand, he says, they weren't there and you weren't here, right? So there's the pointing at the family dynamics part that you're mentioning. Yeah. And the kind of general absentee parenting of Henry and to some extent Paige that goes on in this show. Yeah. But it's a very strange scene at the end with Henry.
1: So two things to just build on that The Like I'm a good person is interesting because the first thing that the neighbors say is like, he didn't steal anything. Yeah. And then Philip says to Elizabeth, he didn't steal anything. And then Henry's like, I'm a good person. So like for Henry and like in this, in like suburbia, right. Like, like theft is the mark of evil. Right. It, right. It's like, there are plenty of other things. Pro- that one property could,
0: crime. We really got to yeah. be on the lookout.
1: So like capitalism, right? So I thought that that was interesting. But like to your point about like the the self-flagellation, to me, I feel like I have lived this experience because like Henry has watched now multiple times over this series, Paige get in trouble and be defiant and never apologize, yep. and he sees the relationship between Paige and the parents like deteriorates like as a result, right? One could so say. I think one could say. So I think that like Henry is and that's like another thing that Henry as a younger child I think has absorbed. Mm-hmm. So he I think is trying to like preempt that same thing happening, but the like you weren't here doesn't help anybody.
0: Yep. Sure <laughs> doesn't. Good no. like I I think that's I think that's a good read of it and also A a real birth order determines all (laughs) challenge, and Danielle and I are both oldest. Uh, I'm I have one younger sister, and Danielle has four younger siblings. But both, (sighs) both, so many. As
1: and you've. You've all met some of them.
0: Yeah, exactly. On this podcast.
1: Some of them even watch the episodes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> some, of them, some of them are still unsure if Clark is the same person as Philip. Um, oh, joined, my God. Uh, by Emily in spirit.
1: Joined okay. by Emily. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, all right. So we said we wanted to get back to Larry and to Lucia yes. in Larry. So we kind of talked through the way, or you talked through, I should say, the way that Larry is picking at or responding to or picking up on and using to his advantage the conflicts that Elizabeth is experiencing in that moment that are indicative of these broader dynamics that we're talking about. How does then this Lucia fit into this framework of that we're, that we're trying to unfurl here?
1: Yeah. So I think the way that I was seeing, so yeah, we get Larrick like, I think exploiting this like, tension he's observing in in Elizabeth or whatever the name of the character Elizabeth is playing at that moment. I don't know. Um, a solid wig though.
0: One of her best wigs. Yeah.
1: One of her best wigs. Um, but I think with Lucia, like we again see, and probably in a, in a, in a more violent or more blatant way, this tension between lived experience and like, ideological commitment. But I think it's slightly different for Lucia, just given, like, the context and, like, her her history, right? Mm-hmm. She is after Larrick because he was one of the people who, like, basically tortured her father. Like, that. she's yeah. seeing that link, right? Mm-hmm. And so she sees in Larrick the, like, direct source of her own pain, her own loss, like, yeah. all of these, like, deep, traumatic feelings and experiences. And that overtakes any ide- ideological commitment that she has had in the past or that she has now. And we've already seen her hold a little bit less fast to her ideological commitments.
0: And has pushed back against Elizabeth on that count. And I think exactly. we've talked about this last week about the couple of conversations we get between Lucia and Elizabeth, where Lucia wants to say, actually, we don't need to create such a strict binary between what the ideology or the mission dictates yeah. And what we in our kind of personal capacities or desires or fantasies or affects would do in the situation. There's actually a way to like, you know, why, why not both?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I guess like with that in mind, there's a way to read the scene where Larrick strangles Lucia as like, has like a weird messed up. I told you so to Lucia, right? Like yeah,
0: hundred percent.
1: And, and so, I think, again, like, in that scene, you get the tension, the internal tension that Elizabeth is experiencing between those. You get the internal tension externalized that Lucia experiences around all of that. And, like, you get Laric, who is willing to exploit both internal tensions yeah. and the, like, the the like the outburst of the externalized tension right like the the danger that that poses the threat it poses
0: you're right and not only is there the kind of like cruel and violent i told you so from elizabeth's response but there's a like cruelly ironic kind of lucia was a little bit right like she insisted that she didn't have to kill carl right yeah she then is compelled by Elizabeth to enact that violence upon Carl, who yeah. dies choking to death.
1: Oh, I hadn't even with,
0: thought of with that. With her at one remove, Ooh. and then she herself gets choked to death more brutally, more violently even than Carl choked to death by Larry in this episode.
1: Well, yeah, and like if if we read those scenes together, right. Lucia is trying to comfort him till that last moment. Yeah. And like, that just makes the brutality of Mm -hmm. Lucia's like strangling even more, Mm -hmm. even more intense. Oof. I hadn't thought about the, like they both choked to death remark.
0: I didn't think about it until this watch through. Um, But that's the last we'll see of Amy Carrero as Lucia.
1: Who did a great job. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly. So far, my favorite, uh, not minor character, but my favorite recurring uh, and disappeared character. <laughs> yeah,
0: she's she's number two to Gregory and in mine mine.
1: Oh, uh, that's, that's fair. Percent. I think I like her more than Gregory. I like I like that she was unpredictable.
0: Yeah, As which
1: Gregory, is I think literally what led to her downfall. Yes.
0: All right. We should also talk about. Uh, the world's least favorite V-shaped triad of (laughs) Oya, Gamina and Stan. First of all, I want to say that (laughs) one of the intriguing to me resonances that's being set up within this episode is that whereas Philip is like induced or seduced by American capitalism vis-a-vis the car, Mm-hmm. And the Camaro and the feeling of it and all of that. Oleg's like, let's meet at the bowling alley and let me talk mm-hmm. about this pinball machine. So there's a certain like way in which Americana figures into Oleg yes. and trying to exert power and control over Stan. And Oleg thinks like his experience of his interactions with Stan are extremely overconfident right? He thinks that yeah. he's just like totally one. arcadi also thinks that he's just like got it and they're on the right track and everything is working. Yeah. And so I think that one of the questions we're meant to ask is that at many times, while Stan sometimes has like smart things in mind, he's also fundamentally overconfident in his self-knowledge and sense of agency and control and direction over the missions he's a part of. Yeah. So there's a certain kind of twinning together of Oleg and Stan, not just as um, antagonists to one another, but also the way they interact with their missions in the world. And particularly their way, and I'm here, I'm finally have made it back to your overall point, the way that like their personal interests and desires figure into those broader missions or organizations or institutions of which they are a part.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a a really helpful analysis because I, the let's meet at a bowling alley was like very confusing to me. I'm like, okay.
0: (laughs) I mean, haven't you handed off like, you know, folders with documents in a bowling alley in your lifetime?
1: Obviously all the time. We have established that you and I would be terrible spies
0: i mean i could go to a bowling alley and hand somebody some documents
1: they would know i was a spy
0: (laughs) (laughs) i mean stan and Oleg are a little overdressed for the bowling alley (laughs) i actually think you and i i'm bougier and like uh you like are more person of the people i think Um, (laughs) both of us would fit in better at the bowling alley as spies than either Oleg or stan Here's this Slavic, tall Slavic-looking man in a trench coat and tie playing a a pinball machine over in the corner. Nothing is strange about that.
1: The trench coat really sent me. (laughs) The point that you made about Stan being overconfident is so prevalent in this episode, or it's like it really like there's a, a strong underline to it when like his request to the DOD is is declined and then he goes and meets with the
0: guy he meets with a deputy attorney general to be like i know you disapprove this and literally this is against all the rules and protocols but i am special and i have a hunch and my hunch is special and you should recognize that my guy
1: yeah and like the the other piece of it is like it's it's gad who's like you should this is what you should do and so there's like part of the way that I read that is like, it's not just Stan being overconfident. It's like a socialization into overconfidence that is, and like overconfidence about control and like ability to manipulate the system. Yes. That like it's not exactly like FBI being bad at their jobs, but it is like, oh, government organizations breed corruption. Like this is that.
0: Right. And Stan's even like he says, oh, all this bureaucracy, and then, A, the deputy attorney general is like, I am the goddamn bureaucracy. Yeah. You know who's also the goddamn bureaucracy? Stan. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, he, like, violates the Fourth Amendment when he's not acting on, you know, uh, within the confines of the goddamn bureaucracy, as we have seen in
1: the past. But to go back to the like uh and the pinball machine, and the French coat, there is a sense. Maybe of, like, they can
0: order meatloaf at the snack bar. I don't know.
1: Uh, uh, <laughs> no, snack bars are for mozzarella sticks and like hot dogs, French fries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Vegetarian. <laughs> we'll take it. Listen, <laughs> I, I love a French fry. Same. I like every day. Yeah. Um. But there's a way in which Oleg is also kind of like Philip in that he's, like, enamored by the, the like, sparkliness of capitalism, mm-hmm. like the pinball machine, and also the, like, video game that him and Nina are playing, and he wants right. to go to the club and sort of, like, show her off, which is like, and here his misogyny comes in very nicely. For sure. The overconfidence is also deeply connected to the tension between like lived experience and immediacy and like ideological commitment. And I have yet to see any ideological commitment from Oleg, honestly.
0: Yeah, if anything, and this goes back to the theory that I threw out a couple of episodes ago that Oleg is the cipher or representation of Gorbachev, right? Because yeah. I think Oleg is more I and mean, he even tells Stan it's partly to like make a joke and put Stan uh, kind of on edge but he says like I'm a good capitalist so I've studied your methods like let's yeah. make a deal where Oyeg's understanding that becomes an inducement into or subjectivization into capitalism mm-hmm. provides a certain kind of, like, ideological moderation of, yeah. well, it doesn't need to be as strict a kind of Soviet model as probably his father represents in certain ways, although yeah. we'll meet his father later on um, in The Americans, if I remember correctly. So. He's trying to like offer a kind of middle ground point yeah. that is well, that that gives more flexibility to the ideology. Although I think we can say that as we, I think as we have learned that how much Arkady knows about what Oleg is doing, yeah. we can see that Oleg's attempt to fuck with Stan is indeed part of a broader KGB mission and is less him going rogue than it appeared, say the converse. I'm thinking back to the conversation we had about when they chat on the docks.
1: Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. And, and now it's like, it feels like piece by piece it's being revealed that this is like, part of something larger that like maybe Oleg was also going rogue in the, the tactics that he used in that moment. It's, it seems now it seems more like he has his marching orders and actually has like a lot of flexibility or like agency over how to achieve those, like the ends of those orders. Right. Like he hasn't gotten the, like, you have to do it this way, this way and this way. Which, like we with Philip and Elizabeth, we see much more of like you have to do this like smaller thing, and we we get more of the pieces. Yeah. So like Oleg just seems to have a wider
0: berth. He does, and that comes with a certain willingness to bend the rules, and that yeah. that comes out in what starts as a scene of like extended flirting between Nina and Oleg. Right, and then he's like, "We'll come to the disco, right? The discotheque." Uh, to, <laughs> one one of my favorite Russian verbs is the verb for to dance, which is танцевать, and we get that in the in the episode. Um,
1: oh, it's similar in Yiddish.
0: That does not surprise me. Yeah, actually, um, makes sense. So. Oleg's like, don't worry. Like, it's not going to blow our covers. It's not going to, like, fuck up the situation with Stan. I invited all the diplomats. There's going to be a big group of us. But, like, really, we're going to hang out. And Nina's like, no, like, that's not how it's going to work. Like, we actually yeah. do need to maintain some boundaries, but only certain boundaries, right? Because Nina's like, well, why don't we, you know, everyone has something about, like, dancing just the two of them in private or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's not like she's establishing this, like, super firm boundary.
1: Well, and that's, like, a question that I have that I suspect, like, will just become clearer as it goes on. But right now, I it is unclear to me, like, is Nina sleeping with Oleg for survival, for, like, her, like, because she's interested in him, some combination of both of those things where one is maybe more prevalent than the other in, in different moments, like, which I think is a similar question I have around, like, everything that's going on with Stan. And I, I will say, like, just as someone, this is the first time I'm watching this show, I have lost the thread on, like, who's running whom and how, yeah. like, at this point in the show.
0: I think that's i think that's a totally legitimate place to be in because in some ways, like, Nina is... And this is, I think, a question that I won't actually answer because would, I think how I would answer would give away too much. Yeah. But, like, how much Nina and in what ways Nina is trying to is like been one of our common themes with her character, like assert some kind of agency within conditions of like extreme, like constricture and like fear, literally fear of death or threat of death. Um, is it play in the Nina Oleg relationship potentially, but also very clearly in the who is running who conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, at, then we get like this, I'm not sure whether it's a throwaway line. I'm not sure whether it's like gallows humor or a semi-serious joking suggestion when Stan tells God, like God, Gad, let's uh, I'm keeping that, let's just kill Borov.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, John, I have the same thought. I'm like, is this just like throwaway, like chest puffing out? Like I can, like let's play with the big boys. Yeah. Or is this like something real? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm confused, but in like in a, I'm confused and intrigued. So I think that's yeah. good.
0: Well, then let's head to the segments where Stary. you're confused and intrigued in other ways. Daniel yeah. Dossier, where we got this week.
1: Okay, so Daniel Dossier. First of all, I and this like builds nicely off our discussion of Oleg because. Like, one of the plots or subplots, one of the things that's happening in this episode, right, is, like, we learn that the submarine plans that they stole are actually, like, were planted and were false and, like, the submarine blew up or sunk or Russians died. Yeah,
0: 160 sunk, Watch, I tried to do a little bit of research before we got going. This appears to piece together different aspects of... Historical things. There was not sort of I could tell, like a Soviet submarine that sunk in the 80s, and this is, gotcha. um, this is what's happening. Gotcha.
1: So, okay, we get that. That's bad. But like the way we get it into in two different places. One we get the like Kate tells Philip and she's like crying in the car so again like back into thinking about feelings yeah <laughs> but feelings in a different way she's like crying in the car and and Philip's demeanor with Kate is really funny to me cuz he's just like I could not care less about like your nonsense like that's sort of how he he approaches her Um, so she's like crying about that. And then later we get Oleg and Arkady, which we'll talk a little bit more about when we get into gloss, but like Oleg is, is like, they like, it's the, it's the Soviet union's fault. They didn't do the right testing. Like this wasn't a plant They're They're blaming it on us and bad intelligence, like et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So so on the one hand, the, the Soviet Union messed up, like, KGB messed up and, like, got bad plans. Or, like, the plans were fine and actually they just weren't executed well, which is Oleg's point. Uh-huh. And to me, this just made me more suspicious of Kate. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that was a long preamble to being no. like, uh, Kate, thumbs down.
0: <laughs> so there's an aspect of that in which Oleg is slightly more aligned with elizabeth and yeah. Arcadi with philip here right because like yeah. Arcadi and philip both take it way more personally than Oleg yes. and elizabeth do elizabeth responds more of a position of anger like how could they do this as she's yes. literally watching a reagan speech um yeah. this is happening so there's some alignment there i have a dossier question for you lay it on me okay Does Lucia's murder in this episode affect in any way how you expect the futures of Nina, of Martha, and or of Kate to unroll? Here I'm like building on thinking about Emily's dossier entry from last week.
1: Yeah. Just like all of the attractive women are like angling for death. Yeah. (laughs) Like they're going to kill them all. Yeah. I mean, I, I, agree with Emily's theory and, and like have already, I think been quite vocal about like, I think Martha is not long for this show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm honestly surprised that Martha is still alive. Um Though this episode, we get some interesting uh Clark Martha stuff, but, and I think like the same with Nina where I, every episode I'm like, is this going to be the episode they kill her off? I hadn't really thought so much about Kate. But I do think that Lucia's murder demonstrates that, like, the, m- the moment that you're not useful for the mission anymore, your life is in danger.
0: All right. Any more dossier entries?
1: No, I think that's it for now. I'm just happy that Claudia wasn't here. <laughs> <laughs> like, Kate's kind of annoying, but, like, Claudia was terrible,
0: so... <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Then let's go to Glass and let's talk about the, what you just mentioned, Danielle, and that is the different question mark glimpses we get at the Martha Philip slash Martha Clark dynamics in this episode. Yeah. How would you so, map that back on to like our structuring question?
1: So I think it's like a slightly different though, related subtopic of the tension between like ideological commitment and uh and lived experience but here it's a little bit less like the lived experience of capitalism and a little bit more interpersonal care mm-hmm. right like caring for one another because i was really struck by the fact that philip comes over is a, and is about to like give martha this really horrible tape that says some like, first of all, the like version that he doctored up already said some terrible things, but then like really says some terrible things and like hurtful things about Martha. Yeah. Like, so as to like win her allegiance back. Cause he, he sees that it's faltering
0: uh-huh.
1: and ultimately like when she cuts him cuts herself and then like sort of has this change of heart he doesn't show her the tape and i was just really struck by the fact that like you you see philip being impacted by the relationship that he is building with martha like he can't he can't ever and and hasn't ever been just like cold ideological like assemblage (laughs)
0: Yeah. And he hasn't gone fully that route, but even this episode, we see the willingness of Clark to, to use an probably overly broadly applied phrase to like gaslight Martha at the very, very beginning in the opening scene. Right. Where Martha says everything is great, except that like, I don't feel very good about like listening and spying on my colleagues for you. yeah, And like, philip as clark goes the route he's gone a couple of times in the previous episodes of like escalating that to like a fight um or like a conflict in Mm -hmm. the marriage heavy air quotes yeah (laughs) and so that to me is the place where he's willing to do that even if he is to your point not willing to go as far as playing the doctored or actual tape to martha
1: Yeah. But like he made the tape, right? Like, so, so like he wasn't always unwilling to do that. Yeah. So, yeah, I just, I was like, I was kind of struck by that and, and just was thinking how that offers another way in to think about the, the impact of like lived experience, the the immediacy of it and the way in which that poses sometimes attention, but other times a, a challenge to the sort of like unfurling of ideology here.
0: Yeah. But then when Martha cuts her finger on the breakfast meatloaf, like Clark is very like caregiving and loving in that particular moment.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so like, it, it seems, I don't know, maybe this is like, I'm, I would be a bad spy, but like to switch on the, like, um, like the ability to care for someone seems very tough for me. Yeah. So like those things have to already be there. I don't know. That's what I was, that's what I was thinking about with Clark slash Philip and Martha. And I also think that this is connected to something that we see with Philip and the septic tank driver, which we talked a little bit about um, in the main discussion, but maybe we want to revisit a little bit here.
0: Yeah. So there's the moment at which Elizabeth and Philip argue whether or not to just kill the septic tank driver. Yeah. And Philip is very insistent that they not do that. Right. Yeah. It's like, well, let's just leave him here tied up. Like no hikers are going to come by. Nothing's going to happen. Um, not to worry about it. Watch in the light of, as you pointed out very early on in the episode, in the light of their disagreement over yeah. how much they enjoy capitalism um, has a particular poignancy to it. But like, did you think there's anything else kind of worth commenting on on the particular scene with Lewis is the, is the oh. septic tank tank truck driver
1: Well, two things. One is I thought that it was, like, striking that Elizabeth is doubling down on, like, the coldness, right? And, like, clearly Lewis is more afraid of Elizabeth than than Philip. And that was interesting. And it, like, in some ways it reproduces the scene with Lucia where, like, she wavers, right? And and it and and ends up going with like cold ideology there. And here it's like there's no wavering, right? So I thought that like it was a a way to for Elizabeth to perform her commitment yeah. and a way to remind the audience that that's always present for like that gear is always present for Elizabeth and it impacts those around her.
0: I think that's a good read on it. And the kind of two points that I'll make in response to that one is the way you just described it, I believe, raises certain echoes to the scene with Elizabeth at the propeller plant right? That we talked yeah. about with Amy yes. earlier this season yes. and the kind of way that she's interacting there and the way she's interacting here, I think overlap to, they're not exactly the same, but they overlap to a lot of degree. Yeah. And then secondly is I want to like, a, like slightly more meta point about the fact that they're going to use the septic tank to uh, get into the like yeah. field base. And that is that they literally have to like, deal with or like go through the shit quite literally in order to make their way onto this base or try to like execute this mission. And I think that actually just like taking the septic part of it quite literally and like on its face actually says something about their relationship to this mission and how they're feeling about it at this moment.
1: Well, yeah. And also I think again, like Elizabeth is like, yep, that's the way in. We just have to do it right. Like blinders on like full steam ahead. And there is not, Necessarily full on reluctance from Philip, but there's definitely like, oh, like this is, there's like, we've, oh, we have to go through the shit, right? Like there's a little bit of that to Philip's response to this, which I think then we see play out in the exchange with uh, Lewis the driver.
0: Great. Good point. We also have in this episode Arkady and Oleg. <laughs> we mentioned this earlier. Like that's been mostly a like dick swinging, dick measuring rivalry. It's yeah. changed a little bit over the last episode or two. Yeah. But we get like the full bromance. Let's have a whiskey <laughs> together. Let's congratulate, backslapping, congratulate Arcadi, congratulating Nina and. Oleg both on their yeah. running of Stan or attempted running of Stan. Yeah. So there's been a shift in the relationship between Arcadi and Oleg that we see yeah. like, I think come most to the fore in this episode.
1: Yeah, and I thought that it was important that like Oleg like lays out his like theory of how they are being blamed to Arcadi, right? Because there is a an alternative version of this where Oleg uses that as a, as an end to some kind of takeover to like, to like enhance his own position and power. But right. instead he invites Oleg, uh he invites Arkady like into that knowledge and Arkady is like less excited about it, but I, I sure. thought that it was, it was important that he decided to like use this as a bit of a branch. And then in response, Arkady's like, let's have, brown liquor because that's a thing that's in the Russian embassy.
0: <laughs> Look, if it's, it's, it's maybe it's a similar philosophy as to like, we don't, in this house, we don't <laughs> smoke Soviet cigs. Yeah, maybe. maybe it's like in this house, we drink the good whiskey, the good shit we can get here. Um, I will say also one more very, very minor note on Oleg. A much better explainer of technology than our guy, the computer science professor. Oleg explained stealth (laughs) planes in 34 seconds. Something that would have taken... Our computer guy, the computer science know, professor, man. 18 minute monologue with several questionably racist analogies to explain with less understanding than Oleg is able to create so you about go to self Japan technology. And
1: there's a post office.
0: <laughs> and it's Hirohito, because that's the only Japanese person I can think of.
1: Oh my God. No, uh, honestly, props to Oleg. Like, very nice job.
0: Yeah, maybe um, he did actually learn a thing in being in the Directorate of Science and Technology.
1: uh we have on the list disgraced soviets (laughs) i do do dig into that john
0: i very much do so we get in this episode a scene of it's a cut immediately from Philip is like, I love this car. I'm in the car dealership. Like, America is the best. Look at this thing that I can buy. It's going to be the pace car for the Indy 500. Immediate cut to fucking frozen-ass Tundra Soviet Union outpost, in which we find Baklanov has been sent to this facility to be supervised by Vasily. Danielle, did you (laughs) expect to see Vasily back in the Americans? No,
1: my... My <laughs> my first note is, how does it make you feel, which you already talked about? But then my second note to myself is, whoa, silly back? What? <laughs> like, yeah. I, not expecting it. And also, like, one, was not expecting him to be alive. Uh, Just Correct. given, like, how they've described the disgrace and whatever. And two, like, was not expecting him to, like, dip back in for this particular, like, I didn't think we were ever going to see Bufana up again. Like... I thought he was just going to be, you know, like, in a prison crunching numbers.
0: Yeah, no, but that, well, is Which this I, factory a prison, Danielle?
1: Well, I mean, <laughs> absolutely, but I thought, like, it was going to be in one of the, like, in like, send him to the gulag, right? Like, I thought we were not going to see him again.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, Vasili's back. Vasili's in charge, question mark, of this outpost. They have Sad Boy tea together. We get a The the cruelest pep talk from Vasily to (laughs) Baklanov in which Vasily is like, well, your people have suffered a lot. Clearly you understand suffering and like you all keep making it. Um, So come do coerced prison science for us. And secondly, he says, look how great the Soviet Union is. I could have gotten a bullet in my head, but instead I'm here in charge of this facility.
1: That line really set me. I was like, <laughs> okay, um, like you're not dead, so like that's good? Question mark. Like,
0: yeah, it's a strange scene. Like you said, you weren't expecting to necessarily see either of these people again no. or for Miss Lady to be alive. But structurally, in the context of what else is happening or going on in this episode, why do you think this scene is here?
1: Something that the scene does is remind us that those off screen are not necessarily gone, right? Like, that right. this, like, the web is deep. <laughs> and so, like, for me, like, I'm sure Claudia's coming back. It's very annoying, but she'll be back. And, like, so, like, even though I thought that Vasily was dead, like, straight up thought he was dead, but here he is, like, in a sort of, like, Not pivotal, but, like, not unimportant role.
0: Yeah. There's a lot that I can say, but then I would spoil a lot of things. So I will not. I'll just merely say that I enjoyed our little detour to Sad Boy Outpost uh, (laughs) in Siberia. Okay. Minor note, a previous minor character of the week returns. Not only does Vasily make his return appearance, so too is male robot back. We love, <laughs> we, we do love mail robot. And also we love Martha, like being talking kind of to Stan, but kind of to nobody, but kind of to the entire office of people keep leaving unsecured classified <laughs> documents, just like sitting on top of this mail robot that slowly makes its way on an automated track through the halls of the FBI. So. But also,
1: Martha is like, I keep reporting it, but no one listens to me, and I'm like, "Oh, yeah. you're dead, lady." Talk, like, you're <laughs> talk about
0: the goddamn bureaucracy. Uh. And lastly, in a real game, recognized game moment, um, <laughs> Philip has done some audio editing of his own. Not only are we like producing this podcast, Philip is like producing the audio of this spying of Jav Gad's office. And I just want to say that like I have some a lot of respect for Philip because I don't think he has access to your Audacity, your garage band, so on yeah. and so forth. So he's like doing this real to real style mixtape.
1: It was some real like Force Awakens, let's get Sir Alec Guinness saying like splice out the Ray so that we can get Sir Alec Guinness's voice to call to Ray like from the lightsaber in the basement.
0: Don't even... remember. I've seen that movie and I don't even know what we're talking about. <laughs> oh, no, no. I, I don't know. We're, like, in the... in uh, I forget the... In uh, Lupita the, Nyong'o's character's, yes, like, taboo. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. And so the voice... One of the voices that calls to Rey is, like, Obi-Wan, but it's, like, Alec Guinness's Obi-Wan. Because, and, like, in order to get the Ray, they had to, like, splice out of a different word. I forget what the word is that they, like, splice the Ray out of because he never obviously never knew Ray as a character because he's dead. Um, Anyway, that felt. Now I'm Everything's funnier when you explain it. I
0: like (laughs) Look, I mean, with the Star Wars folks, like, they had Pro Tools, they had whatever it is they're using to mix it up. long
1: time ago in a galaxy far, far away.
0: Some levels below are us, and then some levels below that on the technology scale is Philip. Uh, exactly making a mixtape a very strange kind of mixtape all right
1: mixtapes let's get into (laughs) (laughs)
0: exactly perfect no notes okay danielle if you bought a sports car in the 80s (laughs) what would it would it have looked like this
1: no i wanted the like barbie corvette that Mm, was like metallic purpley pink
0: Great call. I I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm, like, 99% sure my sister had that, like, Barbie I had it.
1: It was, like, the only fancy toy I had until I got an American Girl doll.
0: (laughs) Shouts Producer Amy um, yeah, on American, all American-related exactly. things.
1: So yes. I wouldn't have had a Camaro, but I th- this car like screamed '80s. Also, the whiteness of it <laughs> like, <laughs> really aggressive. I'm like, you can't get this car. How are you gonna like? drive away quickly and like hide in a white sports car.
0: How are you going to like go to random places? And we even see this when he meets up with Kate later, this is an impractical car for a spy to drive around. Like, yeah. Yeah. Not only do we get the Camaro itself, (laughs) like (laughs) Philip has fully accessorized he and Henry, he and Henry both have shades Philip has a driving hat. Philip has driving gloves. They roll up to the Jennings house. They're out of the car. They're playing some air guitar and they're in these get ups. And it was just extremely Bart nostalgia vibes to me.
1: This is a deep cut. It's not what, it's not the song that played, but the song that played in my brain when Philip pulls up and, like, gets out with, like, driving, hat, gloves, shades, was Cool Rider from Grease 2, which is a song that Michelle Pfeiffer's character uh, sings. If you're cool enough, you can burn me through and through
0: whoa we anyway. love we, we love Daniel karaoke breaks um unfortunately on our, <laughs> our last moon night episode you did a karaoke break just as we were starting recording and i only caught like half did a second I? yeah i only caught half a second of it so it can't go in that uh,
1: what was i singing
0: don't even remember um <laughs> no knowledge yeah okay but they, they are the internet informs us air guitaring to rock this town by the stray cats, which I would not have pegged as the eighties. I would have pegged it as the seventies. Yeah. But it came out in 1981 from everything I can tell.
1: Okay. I have a 1982,
0: excuse me, a couple of months, technically. Nope. It came out in the UK in 81, so we're okay on the timeline question. Oh. You know what I don't care about? Timeline bullshit.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if anybody is uh, wanting John to rant about timelines and timeline bullshit more, check out the Loki episodes in the feed. Uh,
0: I wasn't even going in that. I was <laughs> no, thinking I'm about the, kidding. like, oh, well, this, of all my complaints about Obi-Wan, the TV show, like, yeah. the, it tried to retcon a couple of things. Like, I literally yeah. do not care.
1: Oh, and I was thinking that, like, not that I have watched this, another show that I've listened to podcasts about, but, like, have not watched, (laughs) is Stranger Things, though I do think I would enjoy it because, like, I've played D&D and, like, actually love fantasy. Um, But people are like, oh, like, I guess in one of the, like, last, the most recently dropped episodes, like, one of the characters plays, like... Uh, riff from Metallica's Master of Puppets, yeah. which like maybe comes out like a month before the show is set. and people on the internet are like very in touch with this point and I'm like, this is my version of like who cares? Let's pretend that it came out a year before that. like who cares? Who fucking cares? Agreed.
0: I could not agree with you more. <laughs> All right, Danielle, I wanna clear out for the oh, next man. item in Bard started for the Unremembered eighties. Danielle's crocking her knuckles, you can't see this on air, but Patreon exclusive. Um <laughs> I
1: <was gonna> say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> So okay. Danielle, it's it's your it's your time to shine. Rock this city, rock this podcast.
1: The most 80s thing in this entire episode (laughs) is the fact that Martha is like, oh, I have meatloaf. Let's have it for breakfast. Like, there's no bigger 80s food than meatloaf. True. Like, but also... Who is eating meatloaf for breakfast? Martha, what are you doing? (laughs) Like, my body had a visceral reaction to this. I, like, yelped and gurgled as this happened. It's just, like, it's so disgusting. And I don't hate meatloaf, but, like, the thought of, like... A smash together a loaf of chopped meat covered in like ketchup and mustard sauce <laughs> at seven in the morning. <laughs> Martha. Uncouth.
0: Unc- uncouth is exactly right. And also the mechanics of this, I it's can't. like what it's like WYD Martha. Like she has Prepared and cooked, we know, because it's still fucking hot. Like this meatloaf at seven in the morning, like it was, you know, I appreciate Martha like really loves Clark. And she's like, this is going to be ready for us to have when we both get home from work. We don't have to do any, I, we, I don't have to do any more cooking work. I made it in the morning. What time did Martha have to get up to make the meatloaf, to bake the meatloaf in the oven for it to be hot in the fridge to her to cut her finger on it? What is happening? Meat,
1: meatloaf is literally pounds of meat smashed together in a deep tin. It has yeah. to cook for a long Exactly. Time. Like
0: I've not, I've never cooked a meatloaf, but I've like cooked a pumpkin bread in a loaf pan before. Like you got to leave that shit in the oven for like 15 minutes and <laughs> I don't have to
1: meatloaf. <laughs> and I don't have to
0: <laughs> and I don't have to like get out the salmonella or whatever the fuck. But
1: Listen. Pumpkin bread, appropriate for breakfast. Meatloaf, not appropriate
0: for breakfast. (laughs) That's my rant.
1: Like, I can't. Martha, I cannot. You kind of deserve to cut your finger because this is ridiculous.
0: The strongest take of all. Okay. (laughs) We've also got some more early 80s video games Uh, happening here, as Danielle pointed out. We've got Oleg and Nina playing video games. Henry. Fell asleep playing video games in the neighbor's house. Really brought back memories
1: because I don't know, like, a, I guess we had like a cousin or like a second cousin who, this is in the early 90s, like had an Atari and stopped using it. So they gave it to us, but like, they didn't give us all the pieces so we couldn't use it. And then like very shortly, so this like Atari sat, unworking Atari sat in the living room of my parents' house for like a very long time. Eventually, we got a a Nintendo, but we could only play it for a little while, because then my brother was diagnosed with epilepsy, and then we were not allowed to have video games anymore. And that is the sad story of video games at the Hanley household.
0: (laughs) All right. Um, It's more or less sad than Henry, like, trying to find a surrogate family for video games.
1: His family, they're absent. They deny him video games. Like, it's the only two things he wants, just, like... Hang out and give me video games.
0: He wants three things. Hang out, video games, and I want dad to get a cool new car. He actually got that one in this episode, which is notable perhaps in this episode about capitalism and consumerism.
1: I feel like I should have said this in Daniel Dossier, but, like, I don't think that car is long for this family. That car is <laughs> back to the
0: dealership. <laughs> All right. So two very minor notes in Bar Nostalgia. Yeah. As we mentioned earlier, Henry's got some Star Wars paraphernalia. It looked like there was, like, a 3PO yeah. uh, situation somewhere. It looked like there was a poster to Star Wars in the room. And we get... Elizabeth watching a Ronald Reagan speech about the budget and defense spending in the military, which apparently like his actual footage of in the internet tells me a 1982 speech he gave at CPAC.
1: Okay. Yeah. I mean, like I, the, the like Reagan of it all just like throws all this other stuff into relief, right? It's like Absolutely. at the end of the day, it's like America versus the Soviet Union.
0: Yep. All right. So let's head to minor character of the week. Who do we got this week, Danielle.
1: This week we have the Neighbors, the yes, Tanners. we do. Do you want to tell us a little bit about them?
0: Yes, thank you, Danielle. We have Christy, played by Julie Reber. We have Bob, played by Peter Hans Benson. And we have the kid, Doug, who is played by Skylar Gartner. Why, Danielle, are these minor characters of the week for you?
1: I just, well, first of all, this felt like an episode that didn't have a lot of extra characters, Um, And it does feel like these are the ones we've, like, seen them before, right? We've seen them leave their house through Henry's creepy telescope spying. Indeed. But we meet them here, and we get this whole exchange, and they're like, we know he's a good kid. He didn't steal anything. So there was something, like, wholesome about them and, like, maybe a, a little bit of a, I don't know, like a juxtaposition to the, like, wildness of the Jennings. And even, like, Stan's family, right? Like yeah. the Beeman's. Cause we here. do
0: get like a 30 second scene with Sandy in the oh Beeman my household. God. She's graduating from Est.
1: I can't, <laughs> I can't talk about it. Um, but yeah, exactly. Like there's like it, the juxtaposition position here is like, here's a normal family, right? Which I think is what the show is like pushing on us.
0: Yes. But there's this strange thing that happens and maybe I'm making too much of this. Okay. As Danielle knows, I'm want to do here in this old podcast. We love. (laughs) Mm, Question mark. Uh, (laughs) I love. So the kid whose name is Doug, apparently in the show played by Skylar Gartner. I, do you think that he's supposed to be a Henry lookalike?
1: He 1 million percent looked okay. like Henry. Okay. I, I,
0: yeah. I don't, know, I, I don't know whether like that's just a function of young boys all got that haircut at that time. And so we should file this under bar nostalgia or we're meant to think about the resonance of the different family lives of these I two think, children.
1: I think it's, I think the former might be true, but I think the latter is like part of what's happening here.
0: Okay, and then I've had a, I went down a short IMDb rabbit hole <laughs> earlier while Daniel and I were prepping the episode and figuring out the minor character. Skylar Gardner plays Jonah on Ozark. I could not make that connection. I've seen some of Ozark, not all of it. Um, I think the first two seasons. And I had no idea. And even like in retrospect, I'm not sure I'd be able to pick up on it. Clearly, I mean this, you know, this is season two, so we're filming several years before Ozark Ozark starts. Yeah. Uh Skylar Gardner much older by the time he's playing Jonah, but like Jonah's a teen boy. So yeah.
1: Ozark, another show I've listened to countless hours of people talk about <laughs> and have never watched an episode.
0: Unreal. Unreal. Here we
1: are. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's uh, – I think that wraps up Minor Character of the Week for us. So let's dig into the cave. Who are we meeting in the cave today, John?
0: All right. So a little bit different maybe than some of our previous episodes. We are going to meet today in the cave Mark Fisher, who okay. is like a cultural critic, um, political theorist, et cetera, um, based in the U.K., who died a couple of years ago. But probably the idea that for which he is most well-known is this development of a notion of capitalist realism? Um, okay. It's the title of a short book that he writes for, with zero books that comes out in 2009. It's like very influential in certain kind of like lefty, kind of somewhat Marxist, but also like beyond Marx uh, circles to this day. So I'm going to read the like one sentence explication that Fisher gives of capitalist realism. Then I'll try to kind of draw out what he's saying. Then we'll see if we can get it back to the Americans. So the way that, um, that Fisher describes capitalist realism is that it's like, he's trying to kind of diagnose at one point what he calls like cultural, social, political atmosphere. And here's what that atmosphere is. Quote, this is page two of capitalist realism, the quote widespread sense. That not only is capitalism the only viable political and economic system, but also that it is now impossible even to imagine a coherent alternative to it. End quote. So the idea that Fisher is trying to draw out is that he's thinking about social movements, he's thinking about bureaucracy, he's thinking about neoliberalism, he's thinking about higher education, he's thinking about youth, he's thinking about mental illness, and he's thinking about the climate. And all, across all these different realms of experiencing like what we could call like capitalism or neoliberalism or whatever, Fisher is saying that there's kind of this uh, so overdetermined and overwhelming notion of capitalism and the multiple ideological functions that capitalism plays yeah. that even those who are notionally opposed to capitalism are unable to imagine, as he says, a coherent alternative to it. Yeah. And moreover, the supposed alternatives that are offered to it are entirely or mostly usually entirely unable to kind of break out of the broader like structuring atmosphere or structuring ideology of capitalism. Um, and so there's a way which she's trying to draw on the way that both the critics but supporters of capitalism yeah. have more or less internalized or accepted this notion that there is no alternative alternative to capitalism that could ever be enacted or real in the world or fought for or struggled over or envisioned, so on and so forth. Now, among the many factors that play into this, like he's doing a slightly like neoliberalism thing. So we got Reagan and Thatcher, right? So the subtitle of the book is, is there no alternative question mark? Which is of course a play on Margaret Thatcher's, there is no alternative. Dina uh, is (laughs) around in left circles, right? And that's kind of one example. But then also, he says that even though actually, or actually existing socialism, by the time we get to the eighties, in the form of the USSR, was like fundamentally breaking or broken down. Yeah, the fact that there nonetheless was some actually existing alternative, somewhat fought against the kind of neoliberal. Uh, gesturing our trajectory towards the notion that there would be no alternative. And so in the absence of an actually existing alternative for the left, broadly speaking, but also for the lack of a big other to capitalism itself. Um, That's one of the dynamics that plays into the kind of dispersion of capitalist realism. So I think it's interesting to think about Fisher in relation to this episode of the Americans, because of the way in which Even Philip, who is an actual embodiment of and an enactment of the alternative, himself Mm -hmm. has in some ways accepted that there is no alternative, right? Yeah. If we're going to live here, we're going to buy the car and we're going to live in the house and we're going to have the clothes and we're going to have the shoes. So, like, I wonder if, you know, so I think that there's a case to make that we could turn Philip into kind of an avatar for capitalist realism in a certain way. And also just the way that this show is depicting America in the eighties towards the end, but at a very heightened point within the cold war and the way that that narrative figures into what Fisher is trying to sketch out in this Mm -hmm. book. These are all, I think kind of connections to draw on. And then the last point I'll say before I will stop filibustering is that (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's a matter of the very initial question that you asked, Danielle, and that is how do ideologies function in response to human lived experiences? Yeah. And Fisher, like drawing on Frederick Jameson, drawing on Solo Zizek, drawing on others, um, a tiny bit of Baudrillard, a tiny bit of Leotard, a tiny bit of Foucault, um, and a decent amount of Deleuze and Guattari, is trying to examine Uh, What he thinks is a kind of more pervasive and different sort of account of how capitalist ideology functions than other left thinkers of which he like sees himself as part of a lineage with.
1: Oh my God. Okay. So many good things there. That was very helpful. I haven't read Fisher. So that was a like a super helpful gloss for me. And also just like I think the connections that you're drawing, the reason why. Fisher is a helpful interlocutor for this episode makes a lot of sense to me. And I think like locating some of the inability to imagine an alternative in Philip, I think is like, that makes sense. I would also say that like the internal struggle that Elizabeth experiences is perhaps like another permutation of like the inability to imagine the alternative and sort of like in a, Elizabeth is very clear on what the alternative is. However, like, that is always already threatened by the encroachment of the, like, capitalist ideology, right? Like, she's got the alternative. She knows yeah. what it is. And it's, it's like, it's precarious. And it gets more precarious the longer they are there. And the kids are a really interesting sort of embodiment of precisely the precarity of Elizabeth's like steadfast commitment to the alternative.
0: Yeah. And the fact that it gets embodied in the figure of Elizabeth in the particular way that you've described is also notable vis-a-vis Fisher. One of the arguments he makes is that one of the effects of neoliberalism, of capitalism to individualize, not only the symptoms of capitalism, but also how one responds to, critiques, reacts to, yeah. acts against, becomes so individualized and subjectivized that it makes it harder to build a solidaristic collectivity. And so the fact that, like, just by like the, the structure of this being a television show with main characters has yeah. to funnel those dynamics you identified all through Elizabeth. On her own, and then Elizabeth and Philip in relation to one another, I think is also a little bit kind of symptomizing that as well.
1: Yeah, and the fact that, like, we often see them, especially with regard to their their respective relationships to capitalism, their respective relationships to, like, communist ideology, right? Like, we often see them at odds, which I think, like, just adds to the point of, like, the... Like the individualizing that is happening, and that that individualizing is also like perpetuating a a, a weakening or a weakness. Yeah, uh, yeah. I love one, it. One
0: one more thought, and this is yes. even more kind of out there than <laughs> what I've proffered already. I also wonder if Page is a certain kind of indicator of capitalist realism. Absolutely, right? in her search for religion or for the church that she has um, become active in, that that is a way in which she is seeking out the alternative to her family and the way in which her family is structured by this uh, conflict between these two major competing ideologies, regimes, like institutions, political economic systems, so on and so forth.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's, inc- I think that's incredibly consistent with the way that we have red page throughout yes. the, the season. And I think it's, yes. it's just becoming more and more amplified with the sort of turn to the religious community, even if it's not a turn to religion in yeah. terms of belief, the, the, the turn to that community does seem to be consistent with capital, capitalist realism as you've laid it out and inconsistent with any alternative.
0: Excellent. So not the best articulation of Mark Fisher that anybody's ever given, but workable for the purposes of the cave.
1: I would say an amazing articulation. Uh, Admittedly, I haven't heard anybody else articulate anything about (laughs) Mark Fisher before. But I I feel like you did a good job explaining to me a novice when it comes to this particular brand of theory.
0: Great. Um, Mark Fisher also some really, like, incredible writing about like post punk and nice. like joy division and affiliated nice. uh bands from the 80s. I'll
1: take it. Yeah, I'll take it. All right. I think I think he gets to maybe maybe I feel like he he's,
0: is he's in charge of the movies we watch and music we listen to outside of the cave.
1: Oh, I like that. Yeah, I was going to say he like he gets to move in and out and he stokes the fire, but like yeah, I like the he's in charge of the entertainment.
0: I mean, but Plato's probably not going to be happy with his choices, let's be honest.
1: Listen, Plato can stuff it because I like
0: it. Look, I share a lot of taste with Mark Fisher from my (laughs) reading of him, so I'm cool with that decision.
1: Nice. Well, I think that we have come to the end of the episode. I would think so. Up next in your feed, we've got Moon Knight. Episode three, Moving Heaven and Earth. That will drop on Tuesday. And then on Thursday, American season two, episode nine, Marshall Eagle. Uh, I would like to insist
0: that this is a classic American's episode. It's maybe one of the best.
1: I'll take it. You know, I like like a, a classic episode. Um, And your taste has not failed me in terms of the Americans, so I'll take
0: it. I think the in terms of the Americans is an important and necessary caveat there, it seems to me.
1: Listen, we have different tastes when it comes to other things. But in terms of the Americans, I feel like every time you have predicted either that I'll like an episode or that pieces of an episode will hit me in a particular way, you've been spot on. So I take your, this is a classic Americans episode. Also, we're going to have a returning guest who is
0: Jumping also Jumping over very, from the Moon Knight timeline to the Americans it. timeline, who specifically requested this classic exactly. episode.
1: Yeah. So I feel like that also just like supports the, the, this is a great Americans episode proclamation that you have made. All right, I can't wait. (laughs) Um, Thank you, as always, to producer Amy. And thanks for joining us on Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast.
0: Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast, created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time. Go play some racquetball.